Well, we've been talking about the end of camp since last night. I hope you haven't all mentally checked out. Uh, Because this first talk this morning is about our maturing covenant children and their Lord, I had asked Mark if he might be willing to bring his gang back in here. So if you'd rather listen to Mark than me, you can blame me. It's my fault that you're here because he had, he had about 12 precision lessons prepared. And he was a little disappointed that he was going to have to give up one of his sessions to me, but thank you, Mark, for your consideration, and thanks for putting them all in the front row where I can keep an eye on them. <clears throat> I also thought about dismissing the geezers during this time because uh, they're way past this stuff. Uh, and uh, since they need to be, most of them in the, are in the condos and they need to be out by 11 o'clock. Um, but I know this about geezers, they tend to be up at 5 o'clock in the morning. They probably were packed by 5.15 and waiting at 5.30 for breakfast. <laughs> so they don't really need any extra time to, uh, um, to uh, get prepared. But anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to these last two sessions and I trust God will bless us in our continued Uh, study of his word. So let's um, look to him in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are uh, a timeless God, that you not only sit above the circle of the earth, but you exist above and beyond time without beginning and without end. Um, We approximate that when we hear you say that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And, and we're thankful that you are a God for every season of life. And although our Lord Jesus didn't reach geezerhood in his earthly life, he did, unlike the first Adam, experience infancy and toddlerhood and being a primary and a junior high and a high school age a person, a young man, into uh, his strength, and then he gave his life for us. Uh, And so when we read in the scripture that he has experienced our range of experience, been tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, and can therefore be and is a sympathetic high priest, interceding for us before the throne of grace, but also by his spirit ministering to us in our every season of life. We, we praise you for that reassurance and that comfort. A five-year-old can come to Jesus and know that he is understood in a way that his parents can't understand him, and even he himself can't understand himself. So, so we thank you for the God that we worship, We're sorry that we don't meditate more upon your person. We think about your works a lot, but to be shaped by your characteristics, both your incommunicable attributes as well as those that we share with you, Lord, is edifying in the extreme. And so we thank you and praise you as we now ask you to bless your word to our hearts and guide and direct our thoughts. Lord, among other things, we're not only distracted about the process of leaving camp, but we are really worn out, and although it's still early in the day, uh, once we settle into our chairs, it's easy to check out. So please stir us up and give us grace to lay hold of you by faith during these uh, sessions this morning, and bless all of the classes and all of the teachers on this last day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned to you sometime uh, that my first contact with uh, the young people of the Presbytery of Southern California was, I believe, in 1976, when having just been in the church in Sonora for a few years, I was invited to come down and speak to the high school uh, camp, which was in the summer in those years, and... uh, And I was thinking about the contrast between 
the youth culture of the Presbytery of Southern California in 1976 and, and what we've seen in the last few years and see this year um, here at family camp and, and elsewhere. You know, they say that it takes about 10 years for whatever's going on in the pagan culture to really impact the church. And so in 1976, the 60s had hit the church with a crushing blow. And as I spoke to the young people in that camp, um, they didn't ever bother to make eye contact. They were sitting in the back chatting and joking and, uh, you know, look at this guy. Uh, What's he got to say to us? Uh, They couldn't wait to get out of a meeting. Um, They had to be rounded up for almost everything. Uh, and many were expressing the concern as to, as to just what's going to happen to this next generation uh, because so many seemed so uninterested. They really were worldly in the biblical sense. They loved this present age, or so it seemed, more than they loved God. There were conflicts with parents and uh, many who were not walking in the faith of their fathers. I didn't learn all that from being there, but I I heard that from some pastors and some of those youth leaders that were there. Um, Now things are quite different. Uh, God seems to have moved with a reviving spirit upon our young people. Maybe those years were a wake-up call for a lot of us as parents, Um. But for whatever mixture of reasons, now things are are different. It's not that hard to get young people to to sit under the preaching of the Word. And again, I I don't know what what the representation is. I've had the opportunity about every fourth or fifth year to come to the winter retreats, the high school and collegian retreats, and and to give the same basic presentation of, of material from from Proverbs, and some of the young people I've caught at the beginning of their high school career, and sometimes if I'm five years apart, I get them again going out, and several have come to me and said, you know, I heard it at the beginning of those years, and then I heard it again at the end, and I thought, whoa, so how about that? I I get now what he was talking about. Um, We have so many young people involved in ministry, even here. I mean, Moses over there. Mark's a wannabe geezer. Um, you know, volunteering to lead the young people, uh, Eli and, and uh, Carrie and, and others. Uh, we've got two teams going off in just the next few days to carry the gospel of Christ and to demonstrate the compassion of Jesus in Haiti and in Uganda. Um, things have changed in many, many wonderful ways. And, and so I'm thankful Uh, that this talk can be, I hope, an encouragement to you young people and to your parents to continue more and more. Recently, I preached through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and, and there Paul so often says, you're doing wonderfully. God's work in you is prospering. Now let's have more. More and more. As you are abounding in Christ and in the work of the Lord, let's abound more and more. And so I want to encourage you, but then challenge you to more and more. And some of you parents haven't gotten your kids into the teens years yet, and so you're anticipating these things. And I hope our reflections this morning will help us a little bit. Many young people think that freedom means abandoning their home and often abandoning the faith of their fathers. They're just like that young man who asked dad for his inheritance and away he went, living life as he saw it to the full. Some, just like that young man, finally come to their senses, having ruined their life and say, I'm going back, but sadly many of them don't, or at least haven't yet. They no longer walk with the Lord. What accounts for that? What's going on 
there, I wonder. It'd be tempting as Calvinists to just say, well, it's a matter of sovereign working, it's God's election, it's regeneration or the lack of that, and certainly those are factors. But from a human standpoint, covenantally, as we live as the people of God, what can we learn from those defections and how can we minister to our children more and more faithfully? Are we just supposed to let go and let God commit our children to the Lord and then wait and watch? I mean, in some instances, really, that's all you can do. You've prayed and you have to wait. You know, the, the father in that parable didn't go chasing after his son. He didn't follow him around in a RV, seeing where he was going and trying to continue to give him advice, he, he waited and he prayed. And of course, the point isn't so much to develop a methodology for hand or handling straying kids, but to remind ourselves that when they come home, they are welcomed by the Heavenly Father and also by earthly fathers and mothers who have no greater joy than to see their children walking in the truth. So for you young people, I want to encourage you to continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. After all, Christian living is just that. It's living. What you did yesterday, in a sense, doesn't matter because you've got to do it again today. And what you do today means you have to do it again tomorrow, like Alan just said, all our yesterdays are preparations for tomorrow, and that's true when you're young as well as when you're an adult. Guard the good deposit, the treasure that has been given to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Don't let your thoughts be led astray from that sincere and pure devotion to Christ that you may well enjoy now. You haven't been in here for the other talks, but we've been thinking about what does God say to us in our family roles as our Lord, as we live under His Lordship, what does He want from us? And so we can ask, what does the Lord Jesus require of you Children, as you mature and grow within your covenant family and within the church. I just remind you of what your parents were supposed to have been doing since the day you were born. I told them yesterday that God expected them to pass on to you a sincere, functioning understanding of the necessity of faith in the true and living God, of the blessings that flow from that faith in the true and living God, and to challenge you again and again and again to faithfulness to God's covenant, living in relationship with Him. Or to put it much more simply in the words of that hymn that we often sing, trust and obey, trust and and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. God called your parents to direct their children, to direct you in, uh, uh, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord might bring upon you all of the blessings that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and has now confirmed to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are a period of testing. We live our whole existence in the wilderness of this world, and, and God's purpose during that time of testing is to humble you. Now, you're very humble people, aren't you? Already, not so much. Humble us and make us hungry so that we will come to God with a sense of urgency that we need what He alone can offer us by His Word and Spirit. In Deuteronomy, Moses is addressing the generation that was the excuse 
for their father's failure to enter in to the promised land. When they came through the wilderness, they were fast-tracked to go into Canaan. The spies went in. They said, we can do this. And then Israel shrank back. And one of the excuses they gave, our children. We're worried for our children. What will ha- It'll be dangerous there. There's giants there. We need to protect our children. And that adult generation died out in the wilderness. And then God came to those very same children and said, all right, now are you going to do what your fathers failed to do? Are you going to trust God in a way that they did not? And will you take possession of His blessed land even though your fathers were unwilling? And that's the challenge in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you look at chapter 10 for a moment, you'll see some of these words from Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 10, At that time the Lord said to me, Moses speaking, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden chest. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke, then you are to put them in the chest, the Ark of the Covenant. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones. Verse 4, the Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments. And then verse 5, I put them in the ark. Jumping down to verse 11, go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people. Now this is the children's generation. Lead the children on their way so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord our God ask of you? Now hear this. What does the Lord ask of you, maturing covenant children, within your families and within the church? What does He ask of you but to fear the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And that sort of helps us just parenthetically. We think about what does fearing the Lord mean? Well, You love the Lord your God. That's how you fear the Lord your God. There are other things, but that's the center of it. With all your heart, with all your soul. And then observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set His affection on your forefathers and loved them. And He chose you children, young people, growing adults. He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Verse 16, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The parental generation was stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Don't imitate that stubbornness. Verse 20, fear the Lord your God and serve Him. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's the challenge then. That we will be better than our fathers. Now certainly if our fathers are faithless, like the generation mentioned in Psalm 78, then we can improve on that. But even the faithfulness of your parents needs to be a challenge to you to move on forward. I mean, my wife and I wanted our children, do want our children to be more faithful to God, more useful to God, more devout, more consistent to take whatever they've received from us and then push it on forward. And that's the challenge to you. Now we'll talk about this as we go on, but but you see, it's easy to just sort of coast. Mom believes, dad takes us to church, they require us to have family devotions. And maybe you don't buck it. But in these years, you need to be transitioning from the caboose of the train up toward the engine of the train, moving forward in your own right, in your own life, 
with God and your service to Him. In the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, we read in verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And then in verse 15, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Choose life. Choose life. Verse 19, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land that he swore to give to your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And as you read on into the book of Deuteronomy, God begins to fulfill that promise as the children's generation, now grown up, enter in and take possession of what God had promised to their fathers. Now when we think of this in a new covenant context, we can can think about Timothy, one of Paul's young protégés to which he wrote those two letters in the New Testament. You know, the Proverbs talk about training up a child in the way they should go, and then anticipating when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now, that's not an absolute, never-fails observation. Statistically, no one ever departs from the covenant training they've received as a child. Sadly, sometimes they don't. And of course, literally, the idea is training up a child in his own way, and and then that's going to carry on. But when it works... It looks like Timothy's life. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul addresses his letter to his beloved child, Timothy. Not because he was his son, but because he was part of the covenant community. One who had been raised by his mother and grandmother in the faith. And now to Timothy he has become a child in the faith. He thanks God for Timothy, and in verse 5 of chapter 1, he writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you also. And note the challenge then. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. You've received, and you've received, and you've received. Now you have to do something with what you have received. And that's fanning into flame. Bring it into life in your own hearts and minds and in your own behavior as you grow into adulthood and take your place in the church and in the world. God has called you with a holy calling. And He's been equipping you and will continue to equip you for works of service. And so in the third chapter, Paul loops back around to this and urges Timothy to follow his teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, even as he will share in his persecutions and his sufferings. Verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue, that's the key word. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's the scenario in which that early instruction that Timothy had received from his grandmother and his mother is now going to bear fruit in his own life and service to Christ. And God has placed him. I mean, you really can, uh, I think about what we're trying to do here in this presbytery and in our youth work and with these short-term mission teams. It's like taking you who have received so much in the church and then as a young adult, putting you with a Paul to go to Uganda or with 
another servant of the Lord and to begin to give you opportunities to develop your gifts and express your service to Christ. That seed that has been planted and watered and prayed over for so many years now comes to fruition as the child enters into adulthood. But it doesn't always work that way. Some children despise their birthright. Some simply neglect it. They've been listening halfway, not really taking very much of it into their hearts. And so when they move out of the family environment, they get into college perhaps or into the job market, they begin to associate with other kinds of uh, uh, children of, from other backgrounds and so forth, young people, they, uh, they begin to diminish. They, their, their faith um, is tested and tried and sometimes found wanting. You know, this really isn't the point to extend here, but I think about uh, young people who stop going to church. Uh, they don't read the Bible anymore because nobody makes them do it. Um, and then they hear about how stupid it was to ever believe that stuff in the first place. Uh, they get into a college classroom where uh, somebody's going to say, you know, everything you ever learned about the Bible was wrong. Everything that Christianity teaches us is uh, silly nonsense, and I am here to enlighten you. Usually a guy who's about five years older than you and knows everything, of course. And he's going to debunk your faith. Well, people are challenged with intellectual challenges or ethical challenges. And if you're not firmly rooted, it sounds pretty persuasive. It can be convincing. And so your parents need to anticipate these things. And those who help them educate you. I mean, one of the things that I do in our Christian school is I teach apologetics to the seniors before they leave our school. And really what it's all about is, I want you to hear what you're going to hear next year from me first in an environment where we can ask the other guy questions. You know, it's always amazing. People always doubt the gospel when it's attacked. Why doesn't everybody, anybody ever doubt their doubts? I mean, if you're supposed to be skeptical, why aren't you skeptical about your skepticism? It's always the Bible that has to prove itself. Why doesn't the unbeliever have to prove himself? So, that's my challenge. And some kids get it. Sadly, some kids don't. So those intellectual questions have to be thought about. I mentioned to your parents yesterday that you guys see their hypocrisy. And you see their failure. And in the, uh, the self-righteousness of youth... Uh, you think you're so much more honest, so much more authentic, so much more real than they are, you know, and, and that can become a problem when others come and point out the hypocrisy, the, the failures, the inconsistencies in the church, and you say, yeah, you know, that's, that's right. We talk about lifestyles or ideas that are ungodly and for some reason, we think that because somebody is ungodly in their behavior, they must be a nasty jerk. But some of the ungodly are really nice people. They're fun to be around. They buy the beers. And so we meet them and we think, how could such nice people who buy the beers be ungodly? I guess my parents were wrong. I guess the pastor was lying when he said, watch out for these kind of people. And you get drawn in to lifestyle practices that are contrary to the Word of God. I bet, I mean, I have no way of doing the statistics, but I bet statistically that it's more often than not conflicts between new behavior that you want to embrace and the teachings of God's Word that cause the clash. And then you have to run or start looking around to find some justification for why you just can't believe the Bible and you can't follow Jesus Christ anymore. I read an article a couple of years ago by a youth pastor in a church, and 
He was talking about oftentimes, well, I don't know how often, but frequently enough, students would come back from their first year at the university and they'd say, you know, Pastor, I'm really having doubts about my faith. And this guy, kind of nervy, he said, well, who are you sleeping with? No, I said I'm having doubts about my faith. And he said, yeah, I heard you. Who are you sleeping with? You see, often it is our desire, it is our affection that drives out the love of Christ. Not sitting, smoking your pipe, and and thinking of intellectual objections to the gospel. God says no to something you want to say yes to. Something's got to give, and it ain't going to be that unbelieving boyfriend So Christ has to take the second place. You see, those are the kinds of things that increasingly you're going to face. And some of you are there already. You've got friends that are urging you in a certain direction on the basis of the claim that what you've learned, that treasure deposited in you, really isn't worth holding on to. And so when you listen to those kinds of things, you may stray, you may forget your first love You can't be faithful young people any more than your parents can be faithful parents or faithful husbands or faithful wives in your own strength. God humbles you and He makes you hungry so that you will know that you don't live by bread alone, by your own resources, but by God's supply, His Word and His Holy Spirit. So the key for you, just like for all of the rest of us, to living under the Lordship of Christ as a maturing covenant child is in the life, the strength, and the wisdom that is given you by the Spirit of God working within. Parents can only work on the outside. God the Holy Spirit works in the heart and mind. Maybe you noticed that in those Deuteronomy passages you have a kind of interesting expression. In Deuteronomy 30, we are reminded that God alone can circumcise the heart. He's the only one that can bring that inward change, what Ezekiel calls the heart transplant. Take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Moses describes it as the circumcision of the heart, the inward transformation of the heart. That's the sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the promise is, God will circumcise your hearts. But in Deuteronomy 10, the command in verse 16 was, you circumcise your hearts. Now, is this nonsense? No. What's Moses saying? What's the Lord saying? God changes you inwardly, but that lays upon you then a responsibility to act in terms of that new nature, that new heart, to live as a new creature. It is 100% God's work, but it's also 100% your work as God works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. So there's divine sovereignty and human responsibility in this matter of growing up in the Lord as in every other aspect of our lives. How will that inward transformation show itself outwardly in your life? Well, a few things we could mention briefly. You will personally, self-consciously trust and love the Lord your God. You will make what you have been taught your very own. I know my kids a couple of times, um, and maybe some of you, you know, they would go to maybe a youth meeting or a camp or something, and they'd, they'd hear about some outlaw biker who was a mean, nasty guy a mother raper, a father stabber, a, an all around bad dude, and then. He was converted, and his whole life was changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and he became a lamb, loving God and serving Him. And I remember my oldest son said one time, you know, that kind of nothing, everything is is kind of attractive. This, he didn't put it this way, this gradualism is a little unsettling, you know. 
I mean, we want you kids to have a seamless experience from day one. We pray that way. Maybe you hear it every once in a while. May there never be a day in their life that they do not know and love Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Well, what does that look like? Well, it means at some point, you have to be thinking, yes, this really is mine. I want it, and I will cling to it to my dying breath. I mean, anyone can learn to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Even one young boy in our church, every time there was a hymn sing, he said, lift high the cross, lift high the cross. So we sang, lift high the cross, over and over. He had it memorized. But it's one thing to sing those songs and another to mean them in the core of your heart, to choose to mean them in your own heart of hearts. And again, many young people, though they don't know a time when they didn't trust in the Savior, can think of times and circumstances where they were aware that something that was, you know, sort of receiving actually the baton passed from their parents where they finally took hold of it and began to think and act more deliberately and self-consciously in terms of their own faith and not simply the faith of their fathers. You have to transition from merely going along and doing what you have been told with respect to the Savior and embrace Him yourself personally, the one who loved you and gave Himself for you. And I wonder whether your parents have had this discussion with you. It's a conversation that now should be recurrent as they try to bring you to a more deliberate, intentional, self-conscious exercise of your faith. It can be tied up with making your public profession of faith and being admitted to the Lord's Supper. I hope that's already happened for many of you or most of you, but if it hadn't, If it hasn't, then you're way past due for those conversations, both with your parents and with your elders. Secondly, you need to become self-disciplined. And here again, self-control, self-discipline, is the work of the Spirit in your life. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Or again, in Galatians 5.22, self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Or Paul preached in his preaching, according to Acts 24.25, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. That's the working of God. But, on the other hand, you must be wholly engaged in the mastery of yourself, bringing yourself under the government of God willingly. We talked the other night about meekness. Bringing our will under the will of God. Not what I want, but what you want, said Jesus Paul speaks about it in terms of training, the kind of training that you've had if you've mastered a musical instrument or an athletic skill. Paul writes to Timothy, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Or Peter, who says, to knowledge, add self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. Or in Proverbs, like a city whose walls are broken down, so is a man who lacks self-control. You need to turn the external control of discipling that you've received from your parents and from the church into self-discipline. Understanding the why of the commands that you've been given. 
being motivated by the love of God in Christ to do what the commands say. I mean, I do think it's true. You know, I I pumped out an awful lot of do's and don'ts to my kids. And early on, it was just do it. You don't have to understand it. Just do it. But we must, as parents, more and more give the rationale and appeal to the heart and the motivation for obedience. Just the kind of thing that we've been trying to think about here. We've got the standard, lots of, a, a very good road map, but we need that motivation as well. And you need to become motivated to control yourself in all kinds of areas where you used to have to be told every single day to make your bed, for example. If you weren't told, you didn't do it. And when somebody said, why didn't you do it? What did you say? You didn't tell me. Right? I mean, this doesn't change. That's what I said to my mom. Nothing changes. You didn't tell me. We had a boy a few years ago who was supposed to wear a belt to school every day. And uh, he didn't wear his belt. I spoke to him again and again and again and again. He said, well, my mom didn't help me. I said, you know, you are a 10th grader. I said, are you wearing underwear today? Yeah. Did your mother tell you to put your underwear on? No. Okay, so if you can get your underwear on all by yourself, you can get that belt on. Now that's silly, but it's to the point. You shouldn't have to be told all the time anymore. That's part of growing up, where you tell yourself, you hold yourself accountable, you do what God expects of you, because that's what loving God really looks like. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? (laughs) That's a really good question. So self-control, self-discipline, that's really the essence of genuine freedom. You don't need a tyrant to tell you how to live because you have a gracious king speaking to you and working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. And thirdly, you need to devote yourself more and more to serving rather than being served. You need to begin more and more aggressively yourself to pursue kingdom purposes. You must give up the ways of childhood and take up your cross and follow Jesus. We're all pretty self-centered. Some of you maybe have been told how brilliant you are since you first uttered a thought, or how pretty you are, or how talented you are. You know, your parents' pride in you hasn't done you any great favors if you've been flattered that way. So we have to give up our vanity, put to death that self-worship. We're all pretty lazy by nature, too, and we need to become industrious for Jesus' sake. We're pretty selfish, always looking out for me. Again, you've all done it, right? There's the plate of cookies. You're looking for the biggest one. The idea that if you take the smallest one, there might be grace involved in that. (laughs) Forget about it. I get the biggest. I get the first. I get everything. If you're going to live as a Christian, you have to learn to be last. 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 And so, you have to change. Even nurtured within the covenant, especially nurtured within the covenant, you have to stop being a taker and begin more and more to become a giver. 
All that you are, everything that you have been given in your family and the church are gifts from God for which he expects a return. You know the story about the guys with the talents. You get three, you get two, you get one. What do you do with it? The Lord wants an accounting. And most, uh, some of you just want to accumulate more and more things. I got three and I'm trying to figure out how to get two from my brother. What are you going to do with them? Well, I'm just going to have them. I'll have five and he'll have none and that'll make me better. You see, those are childish ways and they need to be set aside. You need this kind of growth to develop also within the fellowship of the body. And I'd really encourage you as a pastor to connect with your pastor. Ask him if you can have an appointment with him because you want to talk about growing up. And then get out the smelling salts and put them under his nose and revive him again. Say what? (laughs) Now again, this is assuming you've had this conversation with your parents, but now... Again, as an adult, you need to relate more and more directly to your spiritual fathers, to the leaders within the church, your elders. And so you need to begin to talk with them about these kind of transitional issues. I mean, I'm just delighted and have been for a number of years now with the growing number. Now, we don't have a ton of young people in our church, but I have a close personal relationship with all of them. Some more than others, some very intimately. And it's been as much their willingness to be open to me as my willingness to be available to them. You know, adults tell me, well, I don't want to bother you because you're so busy. Maybe you think your pastor is so busy, or maybe you think he's really not that interested in me yet because I'm not fully grown up. Well, let me tell you, he is. But maybe he doesn't want to butt in. So hook up with your pastor, your elder, and start talking about these things. I said again yesterday that the church should be the training ground for you to begin to take advantage of opportunities to test and refine and develop your gifts. For a number of years now, we've had some of our young people who could easily be in a high school, Sunday school class who are teaching Sunday school. And again, several of you have volunteered to do that here. That's wonderful. That's how it ought to be. And all of you should be looking for those opportunities to serve. It's a place to test your gifts. And again, this growing opportunity that we've had in the OPC in the last 10 years or more to have short-term young people's mission opportunities, you know, in your late teens and on into your 20s. I mean, that's a great resource. You should be looking to go on a Team Haiti or a Team Uganda, or a Team Praha. And over the 10 years that we've been ministering in the Czech Republic, we've had a number of young people go along on that team, and they are a wonderful asset because they're looking now to serve. Well, there's many, many other things that I could say about this. But let me just close by pointing out that Paul himself understood this transition. And although he's trying to make a a little different point at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, When I was a child, I acted like a child. I talked like a child. I thought like a child. But when I became a man, when I became an adult, I put childish ways behind me. Now you're all different ages here. And you may be more or less childish for your age. I mean, there are eight-year-olds that are less childish than 15-year-olds sometimes. There's a lot of factors that go into that. (laughs) There are 18-year-olds that are more mature than 35-year-olds that I know. So we put away childish things. It was great to be a kid But those days have to be left behind because God wants mature servants. And you have had so much given to you that so much is required of you. So that's the challenge. But the challenge carries with it a promise. So thanks for letting me talk to you about this. You can go back to Mark now in the next 
wrap-up time, but I didn't want to just talk to your parents about you. Because they already know what's wrong with you. <laughs> they don't need me to tell them. But I want you to know how much we love you and how much we count on you. I said yesterday, you know, Psalm 127 says that the man who has a number of children, and of course it could be one or it could be 10 or 11 or whatever, um, has a quiver full of arrows. And arrows are long-range weapons for the people of God. And we want to fire you guys out there 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into the future as we advance the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what we're trying to do now. Get your shafts straight. Get the tips sharpened. Get those feathers in line so that when we let you go, you'll fire straight and true and accomplish the purposes that God has for you. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for our children. They are a heritage from the Lord, no doubt about it. All the work that they are physically, all of the emotional exercise that goes into caring for them and disciplining them and teaching them is well worth it, O oh Lord. But, but our concern is for their eternal happiness and for their eternal usefulness to you, Lord Jesus. You gave them to us. And one day you're going to ask, what did you do with the children that I gave you? And Lord, we're very, very aware that there are important things, essential things that only you can do. But yesterday we tried to uh, embrace again our responsibility as parents. And now I pray for these young people that they will embrace their responsibility as growing and maturing children in the covenant to say, yeah, that's what I want to be. I want to be a servant of the Lord, like a Samuel, like a young David out there against Goliath. I want to forget about myself and serve the Lord Jesus with all my heart and soul and strength, because he loved me and gave himself for me. Holy Spirit, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And we pray it through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.